Good morning. Uh, that song we just sang, Show Us Christ, I mean, that, that is written as, as a prayer, and it is our prayer that through the teaching of God's Word today, that it would show us Christ. Uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to 2 Samuel uh, chapter 23, verses 8 through 39. That's uh, going to be our text for today. If you're using the Pew Bible, you can find that on page 257. If you've been paying attention to our sermon series, then you probably just caught that we're actually skipping over the first seven verses of 2 Samuel 23 today. Uh, Pastor Matt will be covering that section in just a few weeks, uh, as that is David's last words. Um, and it'll be a very, I think it'll serve as a very fitting conclusion to our series. So please know that we're not just skipping over it. We will be covering that section, just not today. Today we are going to be looking at a list a list of David's mighty men. And I want to say from the outset that this is a part of Scripture that at first glance it may not seem like a very big deal. Uh, And here we we have many names that are listed. Most most of these names are are names that we actually don't even recognize. Um, Perhaps even due to the obscurity of some of the information in this chapter, there actually seems to be an, an unusual number of places where the text is uncertain, where we're not entirely sure uh, how to translate the, this certain points of the passage. First uh, Chronicles chapter 11 actually contains a parallel list of this list of, of David's mighty men, uh, and there's certainly some differences in there as well. And it would be very easy for us to get lost in the details and the problems that seem to persist. Uh, however, what I hope to show you today is that this passage provides very important perspectives on David's kingdom, and it helps us to see why we need something more than what humans can attain. And what this passage shows us is that the strength of God's kingdom rests in the Lord, not in us. And that's the the truth, the transformative truth that we get from this passage, that the, the strength of God's kingdom rests in the Lord, not in us. This is really the, the main theme of this section. Even though we are going to see some very impressive feats by these mighty men, at the heart of it all is the Lord who is working through them to bring about his good purposes, to bring about victory for his name's sake. To put it another way, these men are only described as mighty men because of the Lord. And while this list may seem like it, it isn't a big deal or it's unimportant, I pray that by the end of the message, you will have a very different perspective. There's certainly a lot to unpack here, as we've already touched on this list, recognizes the men that David had for service that really stood out above the rest, the ones that the Lord really used in very powerful ways. Uh, Heraclitus, Heraclitus, I'm not exactly how to pronounce his name, which is going to be a pretty common theme through this message today. Uh, He is a Greek philosopher who once said that in a battle, out of every 100 men, 10 shouldn't even be there. Eighty are just targets, nine are the real fighters, and we are lucky to have them, for they make the battle. Ah, but the one. One is a warrior, and he will bring the others back. And I would say that this section in Scripture highlights the warriors that David was fortunate to have on his side. 2 Samuel 23, 8-39 is intended to recognize the warriors who loyally served David and his kingdom over the years. However, if we're honest with ourselves, even if we can learn to appreciate this fact, reading Shema, the, the Herorite, Ahiram, the son of Sharar, the Herorite, doesn't exactly drive one into a deep time of worship. However, 
In agreement with Dale Davis, I want to argue that there is more here than meets the eye. As we come into this section of scripture, the first thing that we are greeted with is three men. Josheb, Bashabeth, Eleazar, and Shema. These are described as the cream of the crop. And in verses 8 through 12, we see some great human accomplishments. So as we start off in verse 8, and we'll go through verse 12. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Josheb, Bashabeth, a Tachemonite, he was chief of the three. He wielded his spear against 800 whom he killed at one time. And next to him among the three mighty men was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, son of Ahohai. He was with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle, and the men of Israel withdrew. He rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day, and the men returned after him only to strip the slain. And next to him was Shema, the son of Agi, the Hararite. The Philistines gathered together at Lehi, where there was a plot of ground full of lentils, and the men fled from the Philistines. But he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines, and the Lord worked a great victory. In these verses, we see an elite group of warriors. These guys are really the, the SEALs Team 6 of Israel. And the first man we encounter is Josheb Bashabeth, or if you were to go to First Chronicles 11 and look at his name in there, his name would be Jashobim. If you read this section ahead of time, you know that there are some very tough names in here, so I just ask that you, you bear with me here. Uh, I want to let you know that, fun fact, I, I spent about 15 to 20 hours this week in sermon prep and about 30 hours trying to learn how to pronounce these names. And this first name here, Josheb Bashabeth, is the chief of the three elite warriors, and he is as unique as his name. We hear one phrase about what this man accomplished. He wielded his spear against 800 whom he killed at one time. I mean, this is approaching Samson territory where he killed a a thousand men with the jawbone of a donkey. And the brevity of this record, this one sentence, should not diminish how incredible this feat truly was. I mean, part of me even feels cheated because all we hear about it is, is this quick sentence. But what a thrilling story this must have been. It goes without saying, but this is obviously quite the human accomplishment. The next name we see is Eleazar, where we get a bit more detail in verses 9 and 10. He was with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle. And the men of Israel withdrew. He rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day, and the men returned after him only to strip the slain. This was yet another conflict with the Philistines, and this could have taken place really at at any time in David's public life, as we know how much of a nuisance the Philistines were to David throughout his life. And in here we see that the Philistines had drawn up for an attack, and, and David and his men defied the Philistines. And we're not entirely sure what this means, but many assume that since this is the same word that is used of Goliath mocking the Israelites, David and his men were most likely doing a very similar thing, provoking the Philistines and mocking them uh, in their own way, perhaps even mocking uh, the, the gods of the Philistines. And Eleazar defied the Philistines as Goliath had defied the Israelites. However, Eleazar had greater success and greater bravery. When the men of Israel fled, Eleazar stood his ground. And not only did he stand his ground, but he actually went on the offensive, striking down a massive amount of Philistines with the narrator focusing on the fact that his hand eventually clung to the sword because of how much he had used it. 
John Woodhouse attempts to picture this scene, saying his hand grew weary, but he gripped his sword and would not let go of its blood-splattered, vice-like grip until the terrible job was done. His hand grew weary, and yet he clung to the sword, literally implying that his hand was stuck to his sword because of how long he had been holding it. And this could have been the result of, of his hand actually cramping because of how long he had been holding this sword. Have you ever had that where you've been holding something for a while and then when you, you finally set it down, it, it hurts to, to uncurl your fingers? You know, I thought of, you know, as, as when I was growing up, uh, my mom would come home with, after her, her trip to the grocery store and she'd have all these groceries. And, and if you're like me and you grew up in a home with other uh, brothers, then you know that it immediately turns into a competition of, of how many bags can we bring in from, from the, the car in one trip. And so you got, you know, 10, 12 bags you're carrying. You'd be like clamping down on like the gallon of milk in your mouth and you're like trying to, to get in there. And, and you know, it, it takes a few trips and then you finally get down and you, you get to that last trip and you come in and, and you set the bags down and then, and then you just kind of let go and you kind of have to, after the next few minutes, you kind of just have to uncurl your fingers a couple times and try and get, get movement back in the extremities. And, but, but with Eleazar, he, he took it to a whole other level. I mean, the, the cramping was so bad that he couldn't let go of his sword. He couldn't ungrip his weapon. And this great feat of strength, we are told, came not from his strength, but from the Lord's strength. And I believe there's, there's a lesson in here for us. In our own service to the Lord, we too, like Eleazar, should continue to rest in the Lord's strength, not giving in when we are tired, but clinging to Christ. In our times of weakness, we ought to strive to be like Gideon's men in Judges chapter 8, verse 4, where, where they are described as exhausted yet pursuing. And at the risk of over-trivializing this text, as I was studying, I, I thought of the fact that believers ought to be clinging to the sword as well. Not a physical sword, but the sword of the Spirit, the Holy Scriptures, the Holy Bible. Is God's Word something that, that you cling to? You know, I thought of the fact that Eleazar's sword no doubt would have been destroyed at this point, and that's because it was used. He was using it to strike down these Philistines. It wasn't just sitting on the, a shelf. It was in his hand, ready to be drawn, ready to be used. And in the same way, our Bibles ought to be destroyed as well in, in a good way. If you've had a Bible for a while, it shouldn't look brand new. It shouldn't like, look like it's still fresh out of the box. It should look worn. I mean, what good is it to have a nice-looking Bible that just sits on the shelf collecting dust? Use it. Charles Spurgeon makes a fantastic point. A Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. Actually, I'll be honest, I just Googled quotes about worn Bibles because I knew there had to be something out there, but I had not heard that quote before. But isn't that, isn't that good? And it's so true. A Bible that is falling apart most likely belongs to someone who is not. And that's an encouragement for us because 2 Peter 1.3 reminds us that God has given us all things through his word that pertain to life and godliness. If you truly believe that, you will spend your life studying his precious word. Eleazar needed to use his weapon and believers need to use theirs. And now we come to our last of the three mighty, mighty men, Shema. Consider verses 11 and 12. And next to him was Shema, the son of Agi the Hararite. The Philistines gathered together at Lehi, where there was a plot of ground full of lentils. 
And the men fled from the Philistines, but he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines, and the Lord worked a great victory. So Shema is the third member of this heroic trio. And he made his name by protecting a field of lentils from Philistines who were attempting to raid this land. And by doing this, by protecting this land, he undoubtedly made some farmers very happy. And as I was thinking about this, I thought, you know, nowadays, Shema would be the one who's arrested and seen as the villain for not allowing these Philistines to take what isn't theirs. But that's a topic for another day. Here, he is seen as the mighty warrior that he is. The Israelite troops had fled from the Philistines, but Shema, similar to Eleazar, stood his ground and defended the land, killing anyone who was in his path. And we don't know how many Philistines he took on, but we can assume quite a few. Needless to say, these three exceptional heroes had certainly earned their title, Mighty Men. Like John Woodhouse says, these accomplishments were in the never-to-be-forgotten category. We have, however, passed over the most important words in this description of David's three champions. Twice we read the phrase, and the Lord brought about a great victory. In other words, these great accomplishments were more than they seemed. They may have looked like these outstanding feats of strength, bravery, and courage, but the text shows us that they were more than that. They were saving acts of God. The Lord was the one who gave the might, the skill, and the courage by which these feats were accomplished. And he acted in other ways to ensure that victory belonged to David, and consequently, victory belonged to the Lord. And so the importance of these acts rests not in the men's strength, but rather in what the Lord was doing through these men. The true measure of all human achievements is how they relate to what God is doing. Too often, humans accomplish what they think are great things, but they are actually in direct defiance of the Lord. You know, the builders of the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11 comes immediately to mind, where they wanted to build a tower tall enough to reach heaven so that they could glory in, in their own achievements. They could glory in their own efforts, in their own strength. And the lesson we see here is that only when our achievements and our efforts serve the kingdom of God do they have any lasting value. Now that's not to say that God can't use the sins of man to accomplish his will. The exact opposite is true. God can and he does use the sins of the world to bring about his good purposes. I mean, the cross doesn't happen unless this is true. And John Piper actually has a little book called Spectacular Sins that is all about that topic. And so if you're more interested in that, I would highly commend that to you to read as well. So that's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is what Psalm 127 verse 1 says. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. It is the kingdom of God, meaning the rule of God by his anointed king that puts the greatness of all human accomplishments in their proper perspective. It's God's strength, not ours. And as we come to our next section, we then see a display of great human devotion. The second section of our passage shows us an incredible story of another three mighty men and their awe-inspiring devotion to King David. I don't know if there has ever been a king in history with more devoted men than these three, and David's response to their devotion is one of the most memorable things that the king has ever done. So let's go ahead and look at verses 13 through 17. And three of the thirty chief men went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam, when a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. 
David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. And David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried it and brought it to David. But he would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore he would not drink it. These, three, these things the three mighty men did. As Dale Davis puts it, David was flabbergasted, overwhelmed. The goosebumps started coming out as he realized how seriously three of his warriors had taken his words. And what were his words? Verse 15, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. These men are described as three of the thirty chief men. We also know that there was a group of David's mighty men known as the Thirty, as we see in multiple places in this chapter. And it was three of the Thirty, in verse 13, who went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam. And commentators are kind of torn exactly where this falls in David's lifetime. It's possible that this incident may have taken place during David's outlaw days on the run from Saul, as we know that David went to the cave of Adullam during this time. That's probably when Psalm 57 was written, as we heard earlier in the service. Uh, It's also possible that, that this took place early on in David's reign. Some commentators argue that 2 Samuel 5, verses 17 through 21, is the real setting where David defeats the Philistines. In any case, whatever it was, we see that David is in the cave of Adullam and the Philistines are seemingly everywhere with one main group camping out southwest of Jerusalem in the valley of Rephaim. There's another group of them, as we see in verse 14, in David's hometown of Bethlehem, which was about six miles south of Jerusalem. And it was here where David is overcome by a surprising desire. And David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Keep in mind, it's about 15 miles, possibly more, from Adullam to Bethlehem. So this wasn't some small distance that would need to be covered. Not only that, but there were enemy soldiers, as we just talked about, all around. David's words clearly were not meant to be taken literally. Rather, he was simply expressing a longing desire, a, a deep longing for, for, um, for his, this water from Bethlehem. It, call it a case of homesickness or whatever else you want to call it. David, in the heat of the battle and the stress that it has no doubt caused on his life, must have thought about simpler times and how often he must have drank from that well as a youth. And longing to experience it again, he announces what his heart desires. When I read this statement from David, I actually took a screenshot of it and sent it to my wife, Kiera, and jokingly commented, David longed for the water of Bethlehem like I long for smart water. I know I just got a lot of confused looks, but I can't lie, I do love some smart water. Maybe it's just because I rarely drink it because Kiera always tells me there's nothing special about it, but I heartily disagree. To validate my argument, I also googled top tasting waters, and according to waterfilterguru.com, which is a very legitimate and reliable source, smart water ranked as the best tasting. So the conclusion is my argument is valid. So all that to say, I get it, David. I understand what you're going through. Sometimes when you want water, not just any water will do. But now as we get back to what's actually important here, David makes this request. However, He certainly did not realize that three of these men were going to make his request their goal. 
But that is exactly what happens. At great risk to their own lives, they journey into Bethlehem, fight off the Philistines, which again, there had to have been a ton of them. And then they draw water from the well and return to their king, a round trip of over 30 miles. Dale Davis comments, their odds were not good, but they are not called mighty men for nothing. And they return to David with water in hand, the prize of their efforts, the prize of their labors. And what we see next is that David refused to drink it at the end of verse 16, but he would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord. And when you first read this, you may think that this was wrong of David. I mean, these men just risked their lives and now you're not even going to drink it, David. However, this response from David would not make these men who risked their lives angry. It would actually lead them to admiration. This was not an act of waste, but an act of worship. Verse 17, David says, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. And he then adds, Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? He is absolutely dumbfounded by the risk that these men have taken for their king. It is the water from a well in Bethlehem, but to David it represents the blood of his men as they literally risked their lives to, to get this water for him. And as we know, blood belongs to the Lord. And so because of this, he will not drink it. David would not use this sacrifice by his men for his own physical nourishment. It needed to be given to God. As Dale Davis notes, he poured it out, not because it was trash, but because it was treasure. It belonged to Yahweh. This episode then concludes, therefore he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. We've certainly seen a lot of baggage in the life of David, but here was one of his finest moments. As one commentator points out, David in this moment was a king who was the very opposite of the king that Samuel had feared many years earlier when he warned that a king would take, take, take. David turned this great human devotion from himself and focused it on the Lord instead. And as we come to our third section of our passage, we come to what I've simply titled, More Great Human Accomplishments. And in this section, we are introduced to two more great men who also served David, both faithfully and effectively. And they add more details to the picture that we are being given of the strength of David's kingdom. So let's first look at Abishai in verses 18 and 19. Now Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was chief of the thirty, and he wielded his spear against three hundred men and one in name beside the three. He was the most renowned of the thirty and became their commander, but he did not attain to the three. Abishai is, if you can remember, is David's nephew, and he's been a very prominent person in the life of David. We've seen him come up multiple times. In 1 Samuel 26, it's Abishai who offers to kill King Saul for David. Later on, it was Abishai, along with his brother Joab, who pursued and eventually killed Abner as an act of revenge for Abner killing his brother Asahel. Now, it was, if you remember that, that account, it was Joab who actually delivered the death blow, but Abishai was no doubt involved in the plot. Abishai is also the one who offers to go and kill Shimei, who is cursing David and throwing stones at him. Uh, if you remember when Pastor Matt preached on that section, he made the comment that people without heads do not curse. And David put this very bold Abishai, this very bold but impulsive soldier in command of one-third of his army, as Second Samuel 18 verse 2 tells us. Abishai has been a ruthless warrior who has been loyal to David and saved him, probably more than once. 
So we should not be surprised to find his name in this list. However, as great of a warrior as he was, even with the great accomplishments that he achieved, the text tells us that he was not qualified to join the three. And the next man we are introduced to is Benaiah in verses 20 through 23. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was a valiant man of Kabzeel, a doer of great deeds. He struck down two aerials of Moab. He also went down and struck down a lion in a pit on a day when snow had fallen. And he struck down an Egyptian, a handsome man. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand, but Benaiah went down to him with a staff and snatched the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. These things did Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and won a name beside the three mighty men. He was renowned among the thirty, but he did not attain to the three. And David set him over his bodyguard. Unlike Abishai, Benaiah has not played a very prominent role. However, he has been mentioned previously in 2 Samuel 8, verse 18, uh, where we learn that he was uh, appointed as commander of the Cherethites and the Pelethites. And here we learn that he is from the town of Kabzeel, which was a town located in southern Judah. And we read that he too was a doer of great deeds. The text gives us three of these deeds. This first one puzzles us simply because we don't know what an aerial was. However, striking down two of them, whatever they were, was obviously a pretty big feat. The second deed we can appreciate fully because we do know what a lion is. And we read that he encountered a lion in a pit and he went toe-to-toe with it. And Benaiah came out of the pit. The lion did not. This is something that David could appreciate as he too had taken down a lion in his youth, as we read about in 1 Samuel 17. And then in this third great deed, we see that Benaiah encountered an Egyptian man with a spear, who's described as a very impressive man, no doubt a a very daunting figure. And while Benaiah was packing nothing more than a staff, he comes up to this chiseled Egyptian, disarms him, and then kills him with his own spear. And with these three deeds, and certainly more, Benaiah also wins the reputation of being referred to as a mighty man. David's confidence was so great in Manaeah that he actually set him over his bodyguard, which was a role that David had played for Saul. And as I'm reading of these feats, not just in Benaiah, but but just throughout this whole section, I just kept thinking to myself, man, there there is absolutely no way you could be proud in front of these guys. I mean, it doesn't matter what great physical accomplishments you've achieved, what great shape you're in, how devoted you are to CrossFit. I mean, it just doesn't compare. I mean, can you imagine having dinner with Benaiah and David and you guys are sitting around and you guys are sharing stories and you just get done sharing a story of how you hiked up a mountain in the Adirondacks and there was some, some rough weather and you slipped a few times, but you finally made it to the top and you finally, you know, you got it done. And then Benaiah and David, they're not trying to be rude, but now they're, it's their turn. It's their time, time to share their stories. And Benaiah just tells you how he was on a journey and he came face to face with a lion And so he did what anybody would do in that situation and and just killed it with his bare hands. And then David chimes in and tells you the exact same thing, except he actually says instead of Benaiah actually coming in in a life or death situation, there's actually a lion that took his sheep from the fold, so he just went and chased down the lion and did the same thing, killed it with his bare hands. I mean, if you think you're cool or tough or, or you're getting puffed up, just read about David and his men because it will humble you quick. 
or share it with someone who needs to be knocked down a couple pegs. I mean, maybe just passive-aggressively go up to them and say, you know, my pastor was talking about humility today, and you immediately came to mind. I mean, whatever, whatever it is, this passage will humble us. I mean, you read this, your PR on the bench press does not seem very impressive anymore. And what we see is that the Lord used these men to do some very extraordinary things. But before we come to this final section of our passage today, we should notice the overwhelming picture that we are given of the strength of David's kingdom through these mighty men, because it is a very violent picture. Of course, these were violent times, and Israel was always under the threat from dangerous enemies. And these men are celebrated as mighty because of their strength and ability to overcome these seemingly impossible odds again and again. However, this picture of David's kingdom is deeply unsatisfying. After all, this is a far cry from a kingdom of peace. This fell far short of God's promise to David and his people in 2 Samuel seven ten and 11, that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. However, thanks be to God, because we know that there would be a king who would come and surpass David's kingdom. And this kingdom would be everything that David's kingdom had failed to be. Long after David's lifetime, the prophets assured that God's promise would stand firm. Isaiah 9, 6, and 7 says, speaking of the, of the Messiah to come, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And when Christ is born in Bethlehem, he is announced with this proclamation in Luke chapter 2. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. This is very good news for us. Christ has come to fulfill the promise that he has made with David. And while David died, Christ's rule has no end. Meaning that his kingdom has no end. He has conquered death and he sits on his throne at the right hand of God the Father, promising eternal life to anyone who will turn from their sins and place their trust in him alone. We've looked at some amazing feats from these men, but nothing that these men have accomplished can hold a candle to what Christ has accomplished for those who are his. And this, I think, is a perfect segue into our last section, the problem with human heroes. In this last section, we see the list of the 30. And this title probably serves more as a general category rather than a precise number. Over time, surely some of these men would fall in battle. Asahel, the name we talked about earlier, immediately is one of the names that comes to mind. Uh, and other names would be added, but, but here is a list of, of these names here. And so we're going to go ahead and read this list so we're all on the same page, but again, just know that there are some tough names in here, so don't laugh too much if I mess up or really when I mess up. Um, so we're going to go ahead and start in, in verse 24, and we'll read through verse 39. Asahel, the brother of Joab, was one of the thirty. Elhanan, the son of Dodo of Bethlehem. Shema of Herod, Elika of Herod, Helez, uh, the Peltite, Ira, the son of Ekesh of Tekoa, Abiezer of Anathoth, Mabunai, 
Vehushathite, Zalman the Ahohite, Maharai of Natofa, Heleb the son of Bena of Natofa, Ittai the son of Ribai of Gibeah of the people of Benjamin, Benaiah of Pirithon, Hidai of the brooks of Gash, Abiobon the Arbathite, Asmaveth of Baharim, Eliaba the Shelbonite, the sons of Jashin, Jonathan, Shema the Hararite, Ahiam the son of Sherar the Hararite, Eliphalet the son of Ahaspi of Makkah, Eliam the son of Ahithophel, the Gilanite, Hezro of Carmel, Parai, the Arbite, Igal, the son of Nathan, of Zobah, Bani, the Gedite, Zelech, the Ammonite, Naharai, of Beeroth, the armor-bearer of Joab, the son of Zeruiah, Ira, the Ithrite, Gerub, the Ithrite, Uriah, the Hittite. 37 in all. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so... As we come to the end of this list, there, there are three points uh, worth noting here. Uh, the first one, as I already touched on, is that Asahel is the one who, who kicks off this list. Considering that Asahel died early on in David's reign, this suggests that the 30 were a recognized group from the early days of David's reign. And the second point to note that is quite fascinating to me is one of the first things I noticed looking at it is that Joab is actually not included in this list. He's mentioned as the brother of Abishai and Asahel, and he's the one who Naharai was the armor-bearer for. But Joab himself is not mentioned in this list. And the sidelining of Joab may remind us of the constant tensions that existed between Joab and David, which may very well have been the cause of keeping him off the list. Joab was no doubt a mighty warrior, but he was a man that David could never fully trust. And this last point is, in my opinion, the most important one of them all. The list ends with the name Uriah the Hittite. This is a name with a deep and dark past that didn't have anything to do with Uriah, but everything to do with David. One commentator mentions that when we think of Uriah, it is as if we press the replay button in our heads and we are brought back to the horrors of 2 Samuel 11 and 12. This whole nasty episode of lust ruthlessness, deceit, and cruelty. And the writer ends the list with Uriah's name. It is as if he wants us to take a highlighter to that name and then underline it with a pen. Anyone familiar with the story of David cannot help but be brought back at the mention of his name. The list ends on a very somber note. However, I do think that the mentioning of his name is intentionally put there not to simply relive that awful episode, but to actually move past that. In his commentary on First and Second Samuel, Hans Hertzberg argues, The name Uriah at the end of the list leads us to recall what is associated with his name. The list of the men who were David's bodyguard ends with the name of the one who did not betray the king, but was betrayed by him. The end of the list is meant to tell us, Do not forget the name of the last of David's mighty men. We are thus prohibited from making heroes of David and his men. Even here, history was not made by men, but by the grace of God whose help and forgiveness were needed, even by David and his time. Uriah the Hittite. That last name is loaded with the worst memories. But Hertzberg is suggesting that the wickedness of David should lead us to the grace of God. These memories can haunt us, but we should allow them to humble us instead. In fact, this is the testimony of Paul, who regarded himself as the chief of sinners, in 1 Corinthians 15, 9 and 10, Paul reminds us, saying, For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God, but by God's grace I am 
what I am. Paul, too, had a very ugly past, but Paul has allowed it to humble him, knowing that it is on the basis of this fact that he is unworthy to even be called an apostle. But in this humility, he moves beyond the despair of that memory to walk in the grace of God. And this message is not just for kings and apostles. When our most appalling memories are immersed in divine grace, there is still certainly a holy sadness, a godly grief, a broken and contrite heart. But the memories no longer have to haunt us because of the grace of God who has washed away our sins so that we no longer have to walk in that shame that binds us. This is why Jesus tells us in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This is directed at those who recognize their own spiritual bankruptcy and are burdened by their inadequacy to save themselves. And Christ's call is for you to come. Come to him to receive rest. Let this passage cause you to appreciate the kingdom that is ruled not by David, but by the Prince of Peace who beckons us to come where he promises to receive us with open arms. What a God and and what a Savior. And I close with this quote from Dale Davis who notes that this passage is vintage Bible because even in a military list, one can't help but run into grace. I couldn't have said it better myself. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, we give you all the praise today. God, we thank you for this passage of Scripture which points ever so clearly to the God of grace. We pray that you would help us to think on these things as we leave here today. Help us to recognize the God that you are. We pray that this passage and this time of worship would lead to a deeper understanding of who you are. We thank you for your word which transcends time and for the countless lessons that are contained in your word. Help us to heed these lessons and run to your throne of grace to receive mercy and grace to help us in our times of need. We pray this in your name. Amen.